Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Christine Wuschke. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. And Christine and I have been in touch uh, through emails over for the past couple of years because she watches some of the Batcap interviews, and every now and then she'll send a comment or um, you know uh, something about one of the interviews. And I've been a little bit aware of, of um, what she's been up to, but I haven't really had a chance to delve into it until last week or so. Um, where I read her whole book, um, which is a, a kind of a rare accomplishment for me. I don't always get through an entire book, but this one was very good. It's entitled Becoming Freely Human. That's still the title, right? You haven't changed the Actually, title. Actually, we did change it. <laughs> oh, okay. What is it now? It's it's um, Freedom is Your Nature. Okay. Freedom is Your Nature. Yeah. Um, and the reason I enjoyed the book is that I really felt like she was speaking from experience. She wasn't just... Um, you know, philosophizing and kind of fishing around in metaphysical waters, but she was, you know, in a way describing things and perspectives and, and points which might be considered philosophical, but in her case were actually experiential. Um, and so that made it very alive and meaningful, and it's almost like every little sentence was kind of a, a sutra or, or, you know, a kind of a pithy little bit of wisdom. And even though I, I found there was some repetition, I think that was good, and good teachers very often do repeat themselves over and over again in order to get things, get at things from different angles, you know, and to mm -hmm. kind of go deeper and deeper on a single point. Uh, you kind of go subtler each time you hear it. So it was a great accomplishment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, Christine and I thought we might proceed by um, having her tell her personal story. She seems to have had you know, profound mystical experiences from a very young age and yet, you know, went through a lot of the crazy stuff we always, we all go through in teenage years and whatnot. And um, I think a lot of people would be able to relate to it. So, so let's start wherever you'd like to start. Okay. Um, well, I can tell the story of when I was six, which was the first mystical type of experience that I had of, um, I guess, transcendental consciousness or the, the recognition that I'm not Christine, mm -hmm. um, first happened when I was six. And it was after a period of about a year where I was very, very sick and very near death a couple of times in that time frame. And I woke up one morning and all of a sudden the, the room didn't make sense. And it didn't feel like my room. Like it was like, where am I? Who am I? What is this? What is this place? And then it was like this sudden recognition that there's only consciousness. I wouldn't have used those words at that time, but it was this sudden recognition that everything is this warm, enveloping peace. And then the, the, the recognition came in, who, who am I? And it was just sort of a spontaneous inquiry into who am I, what am I, what is this all about? And never forgot the experience. It was just a very profound state of consciousness and recognition that I'm not Christine. And then over the period of, of, an, of the next few weeks, there was a feeling like it, 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 hit, it stayed in my consciousness, this who am I, who am I, who am I. And instinctively, I never told anybody about it. just felt like something to keep quiet. And then the next sort of experience like that happened 10 years later when I was 16. And it was 
a little bit more profound and it lasted a little bit longer, but it was the same type of thing. It was sort of the dropping away of the the personal story or the personal identity and this expanded consciousness, this expand, expanded opening into what what is this? Who am I? What is this all about? <laughs> Any idea what triggered it when you were 16? When I was 16, it was a, the death of a family member that triggered it. And she had taken a conscious dying course. And it, it, I think part of it was that I spoke with the teacher at her funeral. And, and also her experience, my aunt's experience also in that she started really questioning things and mortality. And she kind of went through a shift and, and just watching that happen and watch her becoming more peaceful herself and more accepting herself. And the, the teacher that she had worked with spoke at her funeral, and I had gone up, and I had been sort of like, as soon as I heard her speak, I was like, oh, this is the, this is the thing I've been looking for, because up to that point, I've been reading the Bible and reading these spiritual texts and, and sort of looking for something. And when I heard her speak, it definitely hit something in me, struck something in me, and I started talking to her. And then it was shortly after that, maybe two weeks after that, that this experience happened. I was just out for a walk, and, and all of a sudden it just it just hit me. Mm. And the, the state lasted for a little bit longer and was definitely impacting. It always interests me when people uh, undergo a profound experiential shift just upon... Um, gaining some bit of knowledge uh you know some some intellectual insight almost and uh i've had friends and have friends who are and i have interviewed people who are very much that way they'll, they'll sort of gain an understanding of something and the and the whole it'll be like a fulcrum which moves their whole world just gaining that understanding whereas other people it doesn't see, they don't seem to be so mm-hmm. flexible in that way interesting yeah it's definitely my experience was that every time i seem to encounter these sort of deep ancient truths it would it would move me or impact me a lot and i was remembering when my when my aunt was in the last few weeks of her life going to visit her and it was something something very impacting about just being in in that presence and i could never really put it into words mm-hmm. and then years ago maybe 2 years ago recently i remember listening to an adia shante talk about transmission and he made the comment, the best kind of transmission is being around somebody who's dying and who has fully accepted that they're dying and, and they're sort of ready to go. And it, it just almost it put words almost to the experience back when I was 16 and being in that room and, and the, the feeling that would come over me that I just had no, had absolutely no words for. But it was just a, it was just a presence in the room that, that hit something, woke yeah. something up. I, I bet you a lot of yeah. people have experienced that. I mean, yeah. when, my, when my mother was dying, her attitude was "woohoo, get me out of here!" You know, I've had enough. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she had all kinds of health problems and everything, and and you know, it triggered in me a very deep kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, <laughs> definitely moved me a lot. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so that I know when I was sixteen, I was a pretty wild and crazy guy. I mean. Um, but did it really impact your your life in a behavioral way and all having that insight did it did you become a serious seeker at that stage or was it just a passing phase oh uh, no i would say that was definitely when i became a seeker mm-hmm. at, at 16 and and at the time i was a competitive swimmer oh 
And so shortly after that, maybe a year or two after that, uh, I decided to, to quit swimming. And I had been working with the, the woman that spoke at my aunt's funeral, the one that had been teaching her, and I became her student, right, like right at 16. So I worked privately with her. And then sort of a series of events happened, but it was mainly her influence on me, going to see her and her talking about these ancient yogic teachings and just every time she would talk, it would strike something in me. And she actually made the comment, you should become a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. And so right out of high school, I was like, yep, that's the thing. I'm going to go be a yoga teacher. And I went to Africa after high school. So there, for the, so there was a, a period of a few years where it was just this, it was just seeking, like really, what, what is the meaning of life? Who am I? What do I want to do? And then her mentioning, you should be a yoga teacher, just kind of like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> So did you uh, take formal training as a yoga teacher and everything? Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's why I went right out of high school. So rather than university college years, I went into studying the yoga sutras and studying to be a yoga, yoga teacher, and then I went and lived at an ashram. That's great. Who's ashram? Yeah. Uh, the, the Yashodra Ashram in Kootenai Bay, B.C. Hmm. Not familiar with that one. Yeah. Um, so that's great. I mean, when the most of us were blowing our brains out with drugs and all, you were doing <laughs> yoga and <laughs> got a head start on the rest of us. <laughs> didn't have to didn't have to have spend the rest of your, your next couple decades doing repair work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and so then what? Uh, then I have got pregnant, mm-hmm. had a baby at twenty three. And, of course, that was very life-changing, too, just being, just all of a sudden being a mother. And right after my son was born, I started reading A Course in Miracles, and that, too, had that, had a resonance with me, so I just dove right into that book. I read it every single day. I took every single lesson and just sat with it for hours and absorbed it. So for, for like, the next seven years, I was very, that was sort of my Bible. I would open it every day, read it every day. Immerse myself in it every day. And was it also having a profound impact on on the experiential level? Because you you know you're just reading a book, but was it was it altering your experience a lot? Um, yeah, I I think the thing with the course is that it it's meant to take it experientially rather than intellectually. Like the the lessons are very, um, it, just like a tiny little nugget or a tiny little sentence that you then take in and you sit with it. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if everyone experienced it experiences it in the same way, but I found it to be very experiential. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> I mean, that's the way a lot of the, the you know traditional Eastern scriptures are supposed to be. They're, um, all these little aphorisms and everything, they're, they're supposed to be um, either triggers for deeper experience or kind of confirmations of one's experience. You know, yeah. not, it's not just a, a matter of philosophical entertainment. <laughs> Yeah, it's very. I mean, the, the main thing is the experience. Yeah. Uh, obviously, just as eating a meal is much more important than reading a book about food. Exactly. Or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The 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 Course in Miracles was very experiential for me, so it definitely it triggered a bunch of of states. Well, even in, at the ashram and even in my yoga training, there would be. Um, sort of from the age of 16, like every maybe two months or so, there would be a, a peak experience like that. Mm-hmm. And and so I, it would sort of go in and out for me. Yeah. Where I'd have like a high or like a mystical high and, mm-hmm. and a clarity, and then it would 
it would sort of follow by a, like a despair. Mm-hmm. And they almost seemed to get further and further, like the, the despair got deeper, more despairing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the highs got very high. Yeah. Up to the point where I had, where I had sort of a massive Kundalini eruption, mm. and and I was and I was meditating on a Course in Miracles lesson right at the time that it happened, which was these thoughts don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So I was meditating on these thoughts don't mean anything, and then there was the spontaneous, well, who's the, who's thinking the thoughts? Who's the thinker? And then I was like, well, what if the thinker doesn't mean anything? Mm. And then that became the focus. What if the thinker doesn't mean anything? And then it went into who am I again? Mm-hmm. So that spontaneous who am I kind of would come in. And that triggered the Kundalini eruption? Yeah, it kind of went from from the, the thinker doesn't mean anything to who am I to I'm not real. Hmm. And and who is this? And it was almost like a pulling apart of this I that I thought was real to what if that's not real? What if What if I'm not who I think I am? And then it felt like there was a, an inner collapsing mm-hmm. and then a liquid sensation moving up my spine. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a pretty profound experience that actually lasted for, for several weeks, that like, like almost like water rushing through the body, which is still there to this day. I can, I'm still very sensitive to energies in the body and stuff. But for the first maybe two or three weeks of that, of it happening, it was very pronounced. Yeah, and novelty of it. And the novelty of it, yeah. 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 Well, you know, people kind of put down the experience of states. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think, I don't know, I haven't done a scientific survey, but it, it seems to me, most people I know, um, it's natural to initially have tastes and, mm. and glimpses and, and so on, and, but for, for those to eventually become more stable and integrated until it becomes a perpetuum, you know, or a continuum, rather than just an isolated incident. So, you know, I I don't think we should necessarily um, belittle the experience of, you know, the momentary or or temporary experiences as much as is sometimes done in spiritual circles. Oh, definitely. I I tend to think that everything has value. Yeah, exactly. So the the expanded states of consciousness have their place and they're very... Uh-huh. They're very valuable, but for for me, the experience was was these ups and downs. So yeah. there would be the the mystical state, and then almost like the going, sort of re-identifying with the with the mind and the human experience, and and feeling trapped and contained and despairing, yeah. and and this back and forth, and and over the years, it started to level out. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of look up back and see, oh, there was there was definitely a, a process for me. Yeah. Uh, and and it did. I mean, even though my experience of of being in the field now, there's no linear time. I can I can still look through the eyes of the human embodiment and say, yeah, there was a linear. Sure. <laughs> per, yeah. It seemed to be a linear progression or ups and downs that eventually leveled out to mm-hmm. sort of more of a constant. Yeah, I went through a very similar thing. I mean, there would be days where I I'd, I'd feel like. I can't wait till I go to sleep tonight so I end this misery. You know, I just want to be unconscious. Yeah, I can't stand this feeling of being so trapped. Yeah. And, and then, you know, after a couple of days or something, that would break, and it would be all freedom and bliss and you know, s- smooth, <laughs> smooth flowing. Yeah. And then the next thing I know, I'd be trapped again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It went like that for me too for probably like 
seven or eight years. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I thought of an analogy just now as you're talking about, you know, when we were talking about states and momentary experiences. I mean, you eat a delicious meal, and that's a kind of a momentary experience. It only lasts so long, and feeling full from the food only lasts so long, and next thing you know, you're hungry again. But that food has gone into your system, and it, it has helped to build cells and nourish your body and everything. So there's, there's kind of a cumulative influence from it. Absolutely. And I think there's there's something to be said in the spiritual realm when we have these different experiences, even if they're momentary, there's a kind of a, a permanent transformation on some deep level that takes place, and that, that can be cumulative. Oh, I like that. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just kind of occurred to me. Um, I like it. <laughs> good. You can add it to your book. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need attribution. Um, okay. So, uh, so... Continue on with the story. Okay, yeah. So, so the that that experience, the, the Kundalini eruption experience, happened when I was 28. Mm-hmm. And do you um, mind my asking how old you are now? I'm 37. Okay, good. Because yeah, so in, in your book you kept saying, "Well, I went through this for so many years." I thought, "How old is this girl? She doesn't look that old." <laughs> 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 but you started young. Yeah, I'm ageless, really. No. Yeah, really. <laughs> so, so that was. Um, it was it was almost like things started to really wake up at that point and mm-hmm. and start and then the leveling out started to happen mm-hmm. but it still took several years for for to to kind of all tip over and become like a permanent where i could access what i call the field mm-hmm. it was just kind of a constant sort of a constant recognition that that's always there in other words before you were accessing it but it was intermittent and then eventually it leveled out and became per, kind of perpetual right yeah, 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 like the the way that it was like, it was almost like I was inside, it was almost like I was inside a room, locked inside a room, and all the windows and doors and everything was, was shut, and I was in there, and sometimes I liked myself in there, and sometimes I didn't like myself in there, but the feeling was always like um, everything was locked down, mm-hmm. and then when the Kundalini thing happened, it was like a door cracked open, mm. so for the first time, I could kind of see out of what's in that room. And I could even go out the door and come back, but but there was still like a sense of sort of remaining in there and not knowing how to always access that space. And and the door kind of would creep open more and more and more and more and more and more and more, and more until one day it was like, oh, I'm in the same room, but now all the windows and doors are open. So after the Kundalini thing happened, was that the end of the of the on again off again? No, the on again, off again would still happen. It was it oh. was almost like these big waves, and then they started to go into little waves, and oh, then I eventually see. there was a leveling out. But that was when they started to sort of start to move together. Okay. Yeah. So when the leveling out finally occurred, was there a, uh, kind of an identifiable moment when when was there some kind of transitional day when you thought, okay, I'm I'm level, or or was it just like in retrospect you realize, hey, I'm not going through these waves anymore? I think actually, I mean, there, there have definitely been. Um, very pivotal days, but but it is more of a retrospect thing. It is more of a looking back, maybe on the last five year period, and going, oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely not very much stuff comes up anymore. And mm-hmm. when it does, when it does come up, when stuff comes up, or there is a feeling of of containment, it's almost enjoyable now. It's almost like, oh, oh, good, there's something to sit with today. <laughs> yeah, something to chew on. <laughs> something to be conscious of. <laughs> right. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So I almost looked at the, the 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 Course in Miracles sort of as the thing that 
made me start to wake up. And then over the years, it was like, okay, now, now I know that I'm, now I know what I am, but how do I live as, as a human being? Yeah. And so it almost was like an embodiment, an embodying or an integration phase. The Course that, of Miracles was? No, the Course of Miracles was more the, the wake up. Oh, okay. Wake up. Uh-huh. And then um, an analogy that, that I like to use is like, is like if, you're, if you're thinking you were falling down a well, like mm-hmm. let's say you wanted to go explore a well, and then at some point you kind of bumped your head and the headlamp turned off and, and you felt like you were falling, you'd go into, oh my God, this is terrifying, I'm going to hit the ground. And then at some point you, you remember, oh yeah, I, I have a headlamp, I have a rope, I'm safe, but you're in that same exact well as you were a minute ago. You're mm-hmm. still in the you're still in the same place, but all of a sudden you you're sort of remembering. Oh yeah, I wanted to. I was here because I wanted to be here. So now I can explore the walls and look around. This sort of inherent, I'm safe. So in this metaphor, the headlamp represents what? Just clear seeing, being able to see. Uh huh. And was there a phase when your headlamp was off and you were all, and there was something scary about what was going on? Definitely, life was scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, life was sort of like threatening mm-hmm. because there was this feeling of I'm falling and I, mm. and I don't know what I'm doing here and I don't know what I am. Yeah, you mentioned in your book there was a, a period where for days you like huddled up in bed with this morbid fear of death. Yeah. Like, yeah <laughs> it, it, what's happening to me? I'm afraid I'm going to die or something. And, Absolutely. I mean, is that the kind of thing you're referring to where um, it was really scary because you didn't know quite what was going on or was it more like ego death was taking place and you just had to suffer through it? Yeah, like the, in in the metaphor that the the death is sort of further back than that. More more when um, when I really thought that I'm a personality. Mm-hmm. So that sense of like total total identification with the personal self was was like the the falling. Mm. And because because I thought I was this person and this story and this human that I I could be harmed. And then when everything when there is the light came back on, it's like, oh, what I am can't be harmed. What I am as consciousness, what I am as energy can't be harmed. So, and then there was a kind of coming back into the, the human experience and the personal mm-hmm. side of things. And then it was like an enjoyment. Then like, I'm, I'm sort of using the well as the personal self. So the personal self was was it was scary because it could be harmed yeah and then all of a sudden it's like oh but i'm not the person and that and then it's like okay well now let's explore the person <laughs> yeah that's right. nice i i can think of a number of analogies there's this thing in the upanishads which says uh, certainly all fear is born of duality and um mm. you know if we think of ourselves as this isolated little fragile vulnerable mm-hmm. vulnerable exactly. thing which only has you know so much of a lifespan and and it could be snuffed out at any time and all that it can be kind of a very scary perspective <laughs> definitely yeah. yeah and and then i think there's sort of a tendency to want to get out of the well like just like just get me out of here just yeah. take take me out of the well altogether mm-hmm. so that i can be free i want to just be in the you know in the white space in the nice and and my experience was that you know there there was the light came on and then I was like, oh, but I want to be here. I don't, yeah. don't want to eradicate the, the personal, 
the personal story and the personal self and the, I don't want to I don't want to blow that thing up. I I want to explore it. And could you eradicate it even if you had wanted to? <laughs> yeah. Can can anybody actually <laughs> eradicate <know> so. it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always think that if you take yourself out of the well completely, it's almost like, well, you know, sort of yeah. defeating the whole purpose of being here and and embodying and having a fully conscious human experience. And, and for me, it's such a gift. It's so precious that yeah. that we're here and we have these bodies. I mean, you can think of examples of, you know, people like Ananda Maima or Neen Karoli Baba or something who mm. really didn't have any sort of personal life. They, you know, just sort of, right. you mm. know, had to practically be fed or, mm-hmm. else, or else they wouldn't eat. Um, but obviously the vast majority of humanity is, is not like that. And, uh, yeah. you know, we're, we're much more, we're wired differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of have the sense that you can hold both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like you can hold the personal self and and just the absolute and just pure consciousness that's can't be harmed. It's it's perfect, it's unalterable, and at the same time there's this there's this human experience. Yeah. And they can just be sort of held just this consciousness can just touch the whole the whole thing all at one time and both poles can be held. Now, a lot of teachers would stop you right there, and they would say, yeah, but there is no personal self. Right. You know, so what is this personal self you're referring to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean the human embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some people kind of like build their whole teaching on, you know, all right, find, see if you can find a personal self, you know, mm-hmm. show, me, show me that entity. And, of course, we can't find any sort of kernel or isolated, you know, little thing that is the personal self can't be located and, th- and then that's taken this to mean okay fine that proves there isn't one um but right. but obviously there you know go ahead you, you i think yeah. you can respond to that well it's it's sort of like a computer like i can i can look into my computer and i can say well this is all just just bits of information mm-hmm. this isn't i can start really sifting through and going yeah this is just all pixels this is all just but at the same time i still am going to want to get on my computer and use it yeah and so I have this analogy that it's like, and I'm a Windows user, so I don't know if it works for Mac people, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that if you if you have a computer and it's just in DOS mode, like it doesn't have any operating system, it's just that would be like just pure pure consciousness. Hmm. So it's almost like to function, there needs to be an operating system. It yeah. needs to have like a Windows Seven or something in order for it to be really usable. Mm-hmm. So I think of that that there's that pure consciousness but then we we need to have these pieces of information we need to have data and uh, an operating system and a personality and all these things and then we can function in the world yeah exactly i think on the mac it would be unix there's this underlying (laughs) core operating system that's based on unix and then the mac os is is built on that but um but yeah, I mean, and, or using the computer analogy again, I mean, if it's all just pixels, but you can look at a picture of your child, or read an yeah. email from your friend, or we're having this conversation, and it exactly. has it has a meaning that is much more rich than just a bunch of you know yeah. one, ones and zeros. Exactly, and and I kind of think that th- those analogies are really great, like that 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 I can look inside and find that there's no self. Mm-hmm. I I think that definitely has a value in the sense that it sort of wakes you up. But then it's kind of like, okay, then what? Yeah. So then it's kind of like with the computer. So if I wipe everything down to just DOS 
and I'm now just a, an empty computer that's just, you know, consciousness with no content. It's just totally empty. Okay, then what? <laughs> now what if I want to make a yeah. call? <laughs> so in, in a sense, there needs to be that re-embodying re or, or that sense of full embodiment or full consciousness of the human parts so that you can function in the world and yeah. as both at the same time. And um, actually, we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but <clears throat> I think there, you know, we've, you allude to this in your book, but there's this sort of evolutionary force uh, that, that seems to be orchestrating the universe. And it's, it's, um, it's always kind of moving us along. Um, and when, you know, there can be sort of this absolute realization, I am pure consciousness, there is no personal self, but the evolutionary force doesn't let you rest there. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, next. And, mm. <laughs> and, and you, okay, got that. But now oh, now comes the integration and the refinement and the, yeah. you know, and the, um, the infusion of that into the relative structure, yeah. the relative life. And, and well, it'll be interesting to explore in our conversation today mm -hmm. you know, okay. where that, to what extent that infusion can go. Yeah, and which is why I initially titled my book Freely Human, mm -hmm. because um, I really wanted to, to explore what's, what's, so, so what's after we, we wake up and, and we recognize, okay, I'm not just this isolated individual, separated and, and alone and scared. I'm consciousness. I'm yeah. part of it all. I'm am it all. And then what's after that? So then how do we go about living a human life fully conscious of all the human aspects? So yeah, so it's a great thing to talk about is how yeah. how deeply can we integrate these the, the the awakeness or the awareness that I am pure consciousness and how deeply can I embody that? I, I had an experience the other day with with anxiety where it was like I was sitting with a client and and she was feeling all of this anxiety coming up and I could feel it in my body too and and it was just that and, and she was Christian so I was using the word God and it was just like well the the anxiety is God coming to visit <laughs> <laughs> so so God's coming to visit let's let's let it sit down inside the body and and hold that space and and until it, until it wants to leave on its own, rather than God coming to the visit and kicking kicking it out and saying, "No, you're not welcome here. I'm 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 pure consciousness." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sort of seeing that there's there's nothing that's not that. It's all made up of the same stuff. So it's it's form and formless are the same, which was another experience that I had that I can talk about. Yeah. That, that um, they're all the same. Stuff. Well, you know, the Mona Lisa is just paint. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. that, that paint gets arranged in a certain way, and it has a value that paint alone doesn't have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, have, we, um, have we actually completed the story of your personal sojourn, or, or um, did we kind of interrupt that? Uh, we, so far you talked about yeah. yoga and Course of Miracles. Um, right. Uh, was there another interesting chapter to add, or what? there was another? There was definitely another chapter. Yeah, mm -hmm. after uh, probably about three or four years, I can't remember exactly the timing. Uh, after the Kundalini, I met a satsang teacher mm -hmm. for the first time, and and that that was when I became introduced to Ramana Maharshi's teachings and and the whole <clears throat> non-duality world, and I kind of came onto the satsang circuit at that 
at that point in time. And who was the satsang teacher? Uh, his name was John Taylor. He oh. is he's passed away now, but mm. um, r- really an amazing man. Very very all about love and heart centered mm. focused to his teachings. And uh, I think he wrote a book. I think it's called Let Love Have You. And mm. so his teachings were very much about love. And um, so I worked with him for several years and then met another satsang teacher named Karam Gurgis. And it, it was through him that I really was able to go very, very deeply into the integration aspects. And he's so deeply rooted in his state that there, there was just almost an unspoken permission, like all is welcome. Hmm. There's nothing to turn away from. It's all, it's all the same. It's all, there's not, like he really lives that, not to... Um, so the, after meeting him, there was there was a very strong shift, and that that was when things started really becoming where it was like what I call the field was just accessed all the time. It was just permanently there, and so there wasn't a sense of needing to fear or avoid or resist any of the different things that would arise in life. It's like almost like oh, I I can live this non-resistance. I can let see anxiety as God or <laughs> those types of things. Did these people come through Edmonton or wherever you are or, or did you travel Calgary. around Calgary? Uh, yeah, John Taylor came to Calgary uh, uh, on a regular basis. Karam mm-hmm. um, lives in Toronto but he does come here like mm-hmm. maybe twice a year kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I can just uh, see the ears of some of my listeners perking up because there's there's a certain kind of a you know group of people who listen to these interviews uh, who mm-hmm. rightfully uh, are very emphatic about the value of sitting with a, a teacher who has some sort of transmission, you know, oh, uh, yeah. who can kind of shift your reality but by their mere presence. Yeah. Um, and feel, in fact, I just this morning I was listening to Francis Lucille, whom I'm going to interview next week, and he was saying the same thing, that the most potent thing is just to sit with a teacher who has that, that transmittive ability. Yeah, that's my feeling too, especially after working with Karam. Mm-hmm. And and I can see now that 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 the the stuff that was coming off of my aunt as she was dying is is the same. Like there's really only one transmission. Yeah. Um but but the experience of 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 sitting with a living teacher who is fully conscious of that state and and can kind of emanate it definitely it, it it's like you talked about the food like it's it's like a medicine that 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 comes in and starts to work on you and you don't necessarily know how it's working yeah like if i take a tylenol i don't know how that works that it makes my headache go away <laughs> but but it does and so i feel the transmission to be like it's like that. It's just something that enters your veins and it enters your bones and it yeah. seeps in. Yeah. And it's I'm sure it's subtler than veins and bones because I mean if we Definitely. were if we <laughs> if we were able to kind of see the full range of mechanics of creation, we would see stuff going on 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 very subtle levels in terms mm-hmm. of you know subtle body or chakras or whatever that uh, was actually you know mechanically shifting. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a result of the proximity to that teacher, there, there's something in the subtle that's physiology that's, that, that correlates with stable pure awareness or with enlightenment or whatever that's actually being, you know, altered yeah. by the, by that association. Well, it was definitely my experience. Is mm-hmm. and it's really hard to put words to it because it's happening on such a subtle level that it's 
it's it's so experiential. It's just something that's felt inside. There's a transformation taking place, and mm-hmm. just in just in 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 the relationship between a teacher and a student. Yeah. Yeah. I was a student of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi's for many years, and, and in his commentary on the Gita, he says, well, the, the fastest path is to be able to actually breathe in the breath of, of a, a light master. If you can be in that presence, you know, like a shadow, that's mm-hmm. but he said that's not practical for everybody, so here's a mechanical technique, you know, that you can do on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a mm-hmm. precious opportunity if, the, if it's available. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and in this day and age... Um, there are a lot of teachers out there now. They they may all, all be be of different you know calibers, yes. but but there's this kind of proliferation taking place, and it must be happening for a reason. Yeah, yeah. There does seem to be a lot of teachers, and and even for me, like um, being in the presence of dolphins, yeah, have have that same. I mean, they transmit they transmit mm-hmm. this joy, and you know, they're they're to me. They're just in the field. They just are the field, and so they hold that. The whole pod of them holds that that space. So I mean, there's there's so many different ways. There's so yeah. many there's so many ways to access transmission. It doesn't have to be one specific teacher, but I heard a great story this morning. I wanted to tell it, and this seems like it might be a good opportunity. I'll just tell okay. it quickly, and then we'll go on. This is a story of um, Ashtavakra and King Janaka. Mm-hmm. And uh, ancient story from the, from the Vedic literature, and uh, uh, I guess Ashtavakra was King Janaka's guru, and so King Janaka was there visiting Ashtavakra, and he had a couple of his guards that always accompanied him, and um, he he asked Ashtavakra, you know, what is it about the? A t- it's said that if a teacher imparts a, a, a mantra or a teaching, a guru, then it has a certain potency. And, and I'd like you to, that really makes it effective. And I'd like you to comment on that. And so Ashtavakra s- turned to the guards and he said, arrest this man. <laughs> and the guards didn't move. It was their king. He, they weren't about to arrest him. But, uh, you know, King Janaka got upset and he, and he said, arrest this man. You know? <laughs> and so immediately the guards went and grabbed Ashtavakra. And Ashtavakra said, you see, said actually exact same words. But a completely different effect when I said them versus when you said them. Wow. You know? <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> I actually really love the, the book, the Ashtavakra Gita. Mm, yeah. that, um, um, I, John Taylor was the one that, that turned me on to that book. And, and one of the things, like just talking about teacher and student and this whole topic, um, I, I love the layout in the book, how in the beginning – it's very much the the student saying so what so what's it like and the teacher saying it's like this and the student saying oh it's like this no 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 it's like this oh it's like this no <laughs> and then it goes back and forth and then the student's like i got it i got it and he's like no you don't got it <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the book you can't tell the diff- you can't tell who's speaking anymore ah uh, nice and yeah so it's i i just love how it sort of shows that whole progression of things yeah huh. Cool. So, um, so you, so the, the, so we just covered the third phase, which was you, uh, you know, <laughs> having these satsang teachers and how that really kind of anchored it for you. Yeah, yeah. The the mm. transmission for me. Yeah. And then, and then the teachings became of a of a direct nature, mm-hmm. rather than because before the teachings were, I was reading a book. 
I was reading I was reading Course in Miracles, I was reading Yoga Sutras, the Upanishads and all the Gitas and I was reading all the texts and then it became alive. Yeah. It became real time, so it became questions and answers, my own questions and, and being able to be answered. Mm-hmm. And both these teachers were very available, which I also think is really rare. That I could I could fire off a Skype message or an email and get an immediate answer back. So yeah. being able to, to have that constant contact is very helpful. Yeah, that's great. And uh, and it's pretty available these days. So, you know, and, and around the country there's some, some great teachers and um, yeah. you can connect and around the world I should say. Um Okay, so so let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, what did you say the new title is? Freedom is your nature. Freedom is your nature. Good. And I think everyone intuitively understands what that means. But why don't you <laughs> why don't you just uh, talk about it for a moment? Um, so basically, freedom. The 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 initial, or I guess I should just go into the subtitle, which is a practical guide to transformation. Mm-hmm. So it's freedom is your nature, a practical guide to transformation. So it's about the that that sort of journey from personal identification or identification with the personal self to the freedom to to recognizing that we are inherently free, mm-hmm. and then the the transformation would be the, the the process of integrating that or embodying that into the human experience into the day-to-day life into every into all the little moments so would you say that um the book is primarily about discovering the inner freedom or or primarily about integrating that inner freedom into a human life or both i I would say both yeah okay it's definitely about both parts yeah and uh So let's. I have an outline here of your book. So let's go through a few points in it. Um, okay. You you say uh, what do you really want is one of the first points. So so what do you think people really want? <laughs> um, well, in in my in my work with clients, it's it's always a little bit different. In when you say clients, are you say uh, do you like have one on ones with people? Are you like a count a spiritual counselor of some sort? Or you um, teach do satsangs or what do you do? Um, no, I'm well. I teach yoga and meditation in in groups, and uh-huh. then if people want to ask me questions privately, they can book a. It's basically I call it energy work, or right. l- lately I've been calling it field healing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's um, I I'm a I'm a massage therapist officially, but I do a lot of different ener- different modalities of energy work. So the the clients that come for the one on one sessions, it's sort of formally a body work session, mm-hmm. but then. We we're accessing the body as a point one, but then it kind of goes into wherever they're stuck. Okay. In their Good. life. So. Good. And this is uh, in the Calgary area, obviously. Where yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. So, what do people really want? Um. You know, usually it comes down to peace. Mm-hmm. Or relaxation, or or freedom, or ease. Those are the or or to feel well. Yeah. How many kids do you have, by the way? I just have one. Just one. Yeah. And uh, and a husband and. We're, um, we're no? separated. Yeah. Oh, okay. But um, I think well, okay. Here's that makes my question even more potent. You're a single mom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with a kid, how old? How old your son now? About. He's thirteen. 
13, so that's yeah. a, a pretty uh, dangerous age. Um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, it's good for people to hear that because I've you know run into people say, oh, my life is just too crazy. I don't really have time for meditation or you know spiritual work. There's too much going on. You know, I can't just sit around on my butt. Um, and so here's somebody who obviously has uh, you know dealing with a lot of practical considerations. Um, it's a very it's a very busy life situation that I'm running. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet that has not in the least um, interfered with your spiritual life. In fact, no. you'd probably say it's a, been a, a, an aid to it. Yeah, because for, um, for me it's like a marriage. So mm-hmm. it's like um, I, I have an analogy that I put in the book that, that the, the awakening experience, we talked about states and experience, is kind of like the wedding day. So you have maybe a peak experience or that initial opening that, oh, oh my God, I'm consciousness. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that experience is like the wedding day. Mm-hmm. But the importance of, of a marriage is the marriage, is the, is the every single moment of every single day and everything that's shared. And so I look yeah. at awakening like a marriage. <laughs> yeah. So there was, and there was and obviously all the challenges that come up. You every know, single thing yeah, in life. Yeah. Huh. Every single moment. Every single there's there's nothing that isn't part of it. So yeah. anything that comes up is going to be part of part of it. Well, we'll get back to that. So okay. we're we're talking about what do people really want? And you said peace. Uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean occasionally mean, someone will say like you know a million dollars. Right, but why do they want that? So exactly. they <laughs> so they can relax and mm-hmm. you know just go to the go to the Bahamas or something and and be peaceful. Yeah, which then comes down um, to the the ease. Yeah. Yeah, to rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that ease of being is definitely something you can have amidst it. So, so I'm living proof that you can have ease in working 12-hour days and mothering and going back to school. <laughs> oh, are you going back to school? Yeah. What are you studying? Uh, it's called Haikomi. It's a body-centered psychotherapy. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. So up the same alley as all the other exactly. stuff Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so... I suppose and uh, maybe synonymous with peace would be happiness. Why, maybe even more fundamental than peace, you know, because why do we want peace, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of different words that you could put on it. And, and like you said with the story, the, 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 the words are coming out of a state or, or a lived mm-hmm. experience of. And so ease of being for me is kind of that you're just being here. Yeah. And you're just fully here, and there's an ease behind that, or an ease within that, and that's that 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 freedom is the thing that people are looking for. So back to the title of the book, that 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 is your nature. It's it's totally natural for you to be that right now and already be that because mm-hmm. you are that. So it's kind of like that's your nature. And maybe to put in, to put it in terms of getting out of the the opposite we could say you know people want relief from suffering you know they want, want relief from any form of discomfort yeah or or feeling trapped trapped exactly within the human and and that was part of part of the the analogy of, of the being trapped in a room for me in the experience of if if you were if you were sitting in a room and you knew you could never get out of it mm-hmm. you were trapped it would be a different experience being in the same room knowing that you you can get out of it at any time you want. Right. So that's um, when when you're feeling trapped like that. I think that's the suffering. Mm-hmm. That it's like there's no way out. Yeah. And then as, if someone can kind of show you actually, 
you're free right now, then you can enjoy that room. You don't necessarily have to leave the room. You can stay in it if you like it. <laughs> also, you mentioned that ever since your Kundalini experience, there was this kind of liquid flow as if of energy or, or you know, maybe even bliss, you could say. And, um, you know, deprived of that flow, it's, there's a, you know, there's a pinch in the heart. There's a, a kind of a lack of, uh, it's like a subtle desperation to paraphrase Thoreau, um, mm -hmm. you know. And so, what we really want is we want that steady stream of of contentment that arises from the kind of freedom you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or being able to access what I call the field that just mm -hmm. that 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 expanded that consciousness that doesn't have any borders. Right. It's just like an open field, and being able to to fall back into that space at any time. It's like the it's like being able to open the door and walk out of the room. Yeah. Come come in and out as much as you want. And then when you want to sit down in the room and read a book, <laughs> uh. it's not a bad experience. It's just enjoying a room. Marcio always used to use the phrase "mother is at home." He would say, you know, if the kid's mother is gone, then there's a sort of a trepidation and a, yes. a disease and a concern, and he just doesn't feel free, you know. Exactly. But if, but if mother is home, there then there's this kind of underlying yeah. foundation that makes him confident and content, and and so on. So it's like you know, if, exactly. if that's our if it's if this is really our true nature, what we've been alluding to, and if we're estranged from it, yeah. then th there's always going to be a restlessness. Yeah, there's the there's a the sense of feeling trapped. I think there's a sense of feeling cut off and mm -hmm. isolated and separated mm -hmm. yeah. from from it, which which you actually aren't ever separated. In reality, correct. In reality, you're not. Right. So it's just that experience of it's it's sort of like just that that kind of mental shift, like somebody telling somebody coming in and saying, by the way. This room, this door is now locked. The windows are now locked. You have to stay in this room forever, and there's no way out. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the same room would be like, oh, what? Oh, my God, I hate it in here. Yeah. <laughs> <Get> me out. <laughs> huh. So it's the same room if it's open. Okay. So your next point in the book was, what is transformation? Yeah. And transformation is the realization of your inherent freedom? Is that what transformation is? Transformation is 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 the process of the the seeming reality of being stuck and trapped mm -hmm. to the, the the total freedom and and staying in the room or like the well analogy that yeah. the, the process of of having the lights come on and having the recognition that you're safe and then living that in every moment of every day. Now, you know, for you, it was yoga, Course of Miracles, sitting with a satsang teacher, and, and these, all these things were instrumental in mm -hmm. bringing you to that, you know, under, in facilitating that transformation, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously, it could be different things for different people. But, you know, the very fact that you had a profound experience when you were six years old, you know, and really began to think about the meaning of life and of everything is, is a little unique. Um, and I think a lot of people feel a lot more beleaguered, you know, a lot more burdened and overshadowed and trapped and stress, mm -hmm. stressed out and, and stuck, um, <laughs> you know. So mm -hmm. what would you say to those people who kind of say, well, it's easy for her to say, but I, I, I've been, you know, maybe I've even been seeking for 20 years. I feel st as stuck as I've ever felt. Well, I, I guess I would 
probably want to talk a little bit about having a teacher and the, and just the value in, in being in the presence of somebody who's living it. Mm-hmm. Because it really does start to break it down on the subtle levels. It, <clears throat> it sneaks in and starts to open up all of the channels and, and then the next thing you know there's that river's flowing into the ocean. And if it feels cut off and there's just no way I'm ever going to get there, it's almost like, you know, it, it just gives that little help of something to come along and push that open. Yeah. And, and, and to find a teacher that you resonate with that feels right. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there are a lot of teachers out there. How does one find the one? Yeah. That, I suppose it's, you know, to a certain extent, it's a matter of practicality. If, you know, if in your case, a teacher coming to your town, you, you couldn't find some, you'd be with some teacher who only stayed in Europe or something very practically. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you know, there's, Maybe if there were a dozen teachers in your town, maybe what do you do? Check them out and just see which one really resonates with you. I would say go by resonation. What resonates? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I have a friend who says, you know, it's, it, you only they only need to be one step ahead of you. <laughs> it's nice if they're fifty steps ahead of you, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they really only need to be one. Good one point. You know, they really only need to be a little bit more established in that. Yeah, in that state and that's a very good point. You know, I, I, I'm sorry to be referencing Maharishi so much. I'm not sure why I'm doing that today. But um, <laughs> when we first became meditation teachers back in 1970, he said, you know, it's like a little boy goes to school and the first day he learns A, B, and C. And he comes home and he talks to his little sister and he says, okay, now I'm going to teach you something. This is A and this is B and this is C. And she says, well, what next? He said, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, I was 20 or 20, 21 year old bozo, you know, out, out there giving lectures on meditation. But, you know, there was enough to sort of give people something of value exactly. and, you yeah. know. <laughs> so all these, you know, sometimes people complain, well, all these satsang teachers running around, you know, they're not. Ramana Maharshi or whatever yeah, but exactly. you know they have something of value and Definitely. and if you feel like you have kind of surpassed your teacher then find a more advanced one yeah and kind of like like in the Ashtabhakar Gita too like that you know there's probably going to come a point where y- that you will be able to tell the difference between what you're saying and what the teacher's saying and yeah and yeah, yeah then you could go get find another teacher or mm-hmm or just walk together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah. But I but I definitely strongly feel that everything has value and there's not it, if a teacher's not fully enlightened that doesn't mean they have zero value that there's still there's still value in what they're in in what they have to offer. True. And that's true not only of the genre that we're talking about, you know, the yeah. sort of satsang non-duality scene, but um, you know, people studying all kinds of things, doing Sufi dancing or, um, yeah. I don't swimming know. Swimming with dolphins. Yeah, swimming with dolphins <laughs> or, or atten- attending a fundamentalist Christian church or, you know, whatever, or whatever, or madrasa for that matter. I mean, we're all on the path. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's just, you know. Well, and it's kind of like an art museum. <clears throat> you know, it's like, it, we, we could, you and I could both walk into a museum and be drawn to totally different rooms and totally different sculptures and, and I'd be like, This one is so beautiful and, and you could look at it and say, Meh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so it's the same with all the different teachers and all the different expressions of the one that there's there's gonna be I'm gonna appreciate my teacher maybe in a different way than somebody else if they met him but have zero resonance and someone mm-hmm. else could you know, so it's we all 
we all appreciate what we appreciate. Yeah. Good. All right. We covered that point. Uh, so, uh, all right. So the next chapter in your book, that, or maybe it's, it's what does it mean to be freely human? Have we covered that, do you think? Or is there mo- so. more we want? Okay, we covered that one, really. It's, it's tapping into and, and, beca- and beginning rooted in. Your, yeah, your, like that's the embodiment. Yeah, your free, in. your inner in, inherent freedom, which is already yeah. there, but which you may not be rooted yes. in. Yes, it's so living. That's gonna the living. Make that connection. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like the old analogy of, you know, the guy's got a million dollars in the bank, but he's kind of forgotten that he has. And then maybe he discovers that he has, and but he doesn't have access to the bank account. He's forgotten the password or something. So there's some process that you might need to go to to connect with that that wealth in order to start living it. To live it well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really just about being fully conscious Mm -hmm. of your humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And your divinity. Exactly. And (laughs) And and seeing that they're not different. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. In your book, you used the spacesuit analogy, which you referred to a number of times. Would that be helpful to kind of run, run through that? Why don't you do that? Definitely. Um, so the analogy it, um, is like as if I wanted to go to Mars mm-hmm. and explore Mars. I wouldn't be able to breathe there. I wouldn't be able to, to live in that environment, so I'd need to put on a spacesuit. And then I could navigate through the environment. But if something happened and the, the mass became cloudy and all of a sudden I, I couldn't see and maybe there is such strong disorientation that after a little while I, I completely forgot what I was doing. And after another maybe time period passes now, I'm really kind of frantic. And I'm like, oh, my God, who am I? Where am I? <laughs> what's going on? Why, why, why can't I see? Where, what's going on? And, and so that would be that, that isolation or that, that feeling of being fully identified with the, the personal self. And then having somebody sort of wipe the mask and, and remind you of what you're doing. You, know, you, you wanted to be on Mars. You're here. Oh, you're, oh, yeah, right, right. I remember now. Then you can use the spacesuit for its intended purpose. So that's basically the, the full analogy of the story. In the story, they're angels that, that want to be human. And then they get identified with the spacesuit. They have to put on a spacesuit in order to exist yeah. on Earth in this density. And then they forget. It's a, I love that point, actually. And I've read a number of these books by Michael Newton, you know, of uh, Life Between Life and so on, where he hypnotizes people to go back and remember the, the, the period between births, between incarnations, where they were kind of like reviewing, reviewing what they had done and setting themselves up for the next one. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of fascinating, though, to see. I mean, presuming that we're in a state before we're born where we kind of have a broader picture of what it's all about and all mm. it's kind of fascinating to see what the density of of becoming an incarnate being does to that perspective mm. and and the whole game of kind of remembering it or rediscover you know remembering really our our true nature yeah um in the midst of the density yeah yeah i, d- I mean when i was sort of between the age of 5 and 6 in that in the period of time where i was very sick and near death there were, there were a few moments where it was like, I don't even know if I, I actually died. I know I definitely lost consciousness. But there was moments in that time period where it was like a, a memory of, of that. It was mm. almost like this 
reconnection to an intention. And it's mm-hmm. so languageless, like there's no way I could even really put it into words. And it's so subtle. It almost feels like a completely different language or something. Mm-hmm. But this this reconnection to you're here because you wanted to be here. Yeah. You came to Mars for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, th- I think maybe one definition we could give to enlightenment, uh, if we want to use that word, is, you know, having uh, f- fully and, and permanently recognized our divine nature in the midst of, uh, you know, concrete human life. I mean, it's said in some circles, for instance, that the angels are jealous of human beings because <laughs> it, because human beings have the opportunity to actually complete yeah. the process of evolution, whereas angels don't have the, the nervous system to do it. They're in a exactly. very sub- sublime celestial state, yeah. but to the, the, the name of the game ultimately is being able to live on all levels. Yeah, and to th- this density is, it's a tough one. Mm. It's like playing the video game on the hardest possible level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in a way, it's it's kind of sad to think. I don't know if sad, if sad's the right word, but when you look at the world, how I mean, we're we're privileged in a way. Definitely. You you and I and people like us because we're yeah. we're able to talk about something, which you know the the vast majority of the world, the people in Syria right now, the people in Uganda, you know, going, people in various places going through yeah. horrible, difficult circumstances. Boy, the the density for them, the the reality of the dream Absolutely. is very compelling and yeah. and very hard to see through. Yeah, because they're yeah, and they're sort of in survival mode, and even just that we have idle time is is pretty rare. It's huge, yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. a huge gift. It is. Um, yeah. So something to be very grateful for. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, you know, I'm sure if we want to dip into a bit of woo-woo now, I'm sure that <laughs> we, we've all had those tough lifetimes. You yeah. know. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, having to go through all the horrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact. I've had this shoulder problem for a while, and I can't move my shoulder very properly. And the funny thing is, uh, for a while before this developed, I was going through these kind of obsessions with torture and being on a rack, you know, the rack they used to use. And I even looked it up on the Internet, and I think, why am I interested in this? And this shoulder thing started, and I thought, geez, I wonder if that happened to me, or maybe I was the executioner or something, and (laughs) and I'm having to kind of work out some karma from it. Interesting. Your body stored it, held on. Yeah. Okay, back from woo-woo land. We'll go back back to woo-woo land again in a little while. Okay, Um, Because I know you you like that. (laughs) Um, All right, so you have a chapter entitled The Courage to be Authentically You. Mm -hmm. Is it a matter of courage? I I feel it is. Because I think think what tends to happen is that we get – locked down into these patterns, into these unconscious ways of being, and they start to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't a sense of, of questioning them, like, why am I doing that? Or why am I always ending up in this this job that I hate? Or why am I always ending up in this relationship with this particular personality type? Mm. And in, in a sense, there's, there's both the, the feeling trapped in that pattern and there's feeling safe in that pattern. We might not be consciously aware of the, that it feels safe, but it's because it's become known. And I think what the courage part is, is that we need to step into the unknown before we can become fully conscious of that pattern. 
Mm-hmm. And then once that consciousness or once that pattern is fully conscious, then we may break out of it or we may even live it out consciously for a while and it'll fall away. But I think there's definitely a moment where it's like where it's like if you're jumping off the high diving board. You have to take that step and there's like a invocation of courage of okay, I'm gonna leap into the unknown, I'm gonna step out of this pattern that's known. And I don't like it. I don't like being there, but I also don't like the unknown. <laughs> yeah. So there's like a there there's a courage first and then and then there's just the raw you <clears throat> that can be unprotected, un, undefended and you're not protected by that pattern anymore. So it feels a little bit vulnerable and then you get used to it and then it just is it's actually so are you talking uh, primarily about, you know, practical mundane situations like being in a, a marriage that, you know, you might not have the courage to leave or being in a job that you might not have the courage to leave because you don't think you're going to be able to get another job? Or are you talking more really about uh, kind of more of a, a spiritual dimension to it where we're kind of stuck in a certain reality of experience and it takes courage to um, move to a deeper level? Well, I, th- I think it's I think it's all the same. Like the, you know, in the yogic terms, it would be the samskara or the repetition, the the, the karmic. I kind of I like to call it a karmic riptide, you know, a, or a under undertow of energy that keeps us stuck or a tendency that kind of we we sort of fall into. And I that that when you look at a, a life and you look at a life situation you can see those and what are the things that repeat what are the things that i that i'm doing are i i am not conscious of it but i i've got this job again and it's the same scenario as my last job that i left because i didn't like so why am i there again mm. and that's that's a spiritual or that's a that's a some scar or a karmic undertow that's pulled us yeah. in yeah but a lot of people feel they don't have a Choice. They feel like, well, I've got kids to feed, you know, I've got bills to pay, and, and so on. So I can't really make a leap here, even though I'd much rather be doing something different. Mm-hmm. You know, what what can I do? You know, it, and, and courage might, you know, just leaving might seem reckless or irresponsible or something. Yeah, and and it's not necessary because leaving leaving it wouldn't be the solution though, because if you left, if you if you weren't taking consciousness fully to the underlying source. Of, of why is that pattern there in the, to begin with, then you're going to leave that marriage and then you're going to end up in the new guy is going to turn out to be the same guy. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just going to look different at first. <laughs> but, you know, so, so even just to, so it's not necessarily courage to leave a marriage that, that isn't working because that's not necessarily going to take you to the, the root of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had this old friend uh, who became some somewhat famous uh, relationship counselor and everything, and and she one of her claims to fame was that she'd been married about six times, so she felt like she really had an expertise in <laughs> what you could do wrong. Um, but um, so, how do you get to the root of it then? And I mean, how do you really root out the cause of uh, dead end marriages or dead end jobs or whatever, so as to you know create a, a much more healthy situation for yourself? Well, that would be that would be where I would say you start to enter into the energetic or, or the the woo woo stuff. So you mm-hmm. start to get into the the underlying issue is is a very deep karmic place to 
to go to. And it's, um, there, there's an energetic component that has to be basically penetrated and seen. Mm-hmm. And then the, the whole pattern will start to unravel. So it's kind of like if, if I was weeding a garden and I was just cutting the weeds off on the top and left the root there, that weed would just come back. But if I was able to somehow dig down into the root and pull it out, then that would that would shift that whole land. But how, how does a person do that? Well, that's the, the energetic component is basically going into the feeling level hmm. and, and dropping into the feeling first and letting that be like... Um, if I were to take the, the form, which would be, so, so just, I'll back up a little bit. So if, if it were a pattern that had a feeling underneath it, like if we're talking about, say, a dead-end relationship, there will be a feeling underneath there, and that would be the starting point. So the, if the feeling is desperation or, or helpless or grief or loss or whatever it is, it's to sort of first find that, that feeling. What does it feel like for me to be in this situation? What do I feel? So would you say, suggest that a person sit down on the couch and close their eyes yeah. and kind of try to go into that feeling? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, get, get, to get still and relaxed and then drop into the feeling. For, first mm. find what the feeling is and then start to just allow that feeling to be there and really drop into it. So if it were a feeling of... I'm afraid of I'm afraid of loss or I'm afraid to be I'm afraid to be alone. I don't like being alone. So then what I would recommend to do and this is sort of what I do in the energy work is is we would hold the feeling of aloneness as energy. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a little bit like alchemy. So we would hold the feeling of aloneness together as just an energy and and kind of on an impersonal level. So we would see that aloneness is just a frequency. It's just something like the moon that's just kind of passing by. It doesn't actually belong to you. It's just this feeling that happens to be registering in your particular nervous system, this universal feeling called aloneness. And then we would drop into that. And, and that's like finding the, that's like taking the, the top of the weed and following it down <clears throat> to get to the root. Mm-hmm. And at some point, it's sort of penetrated, and, and the form becomes the formless. And that's when it starts to be, that's when you can really see it clearly. And it's, once it's seen, then it starts to unravel by itself. Because once you're really aware of it, then you're, you're conscious of it. So in your experience in dealing with <clears throat> clients, as you call them, um, mm-hmm. have you found that after uh, helping people through this kind of process, uh, their relationships change, their jo- they get better jobs, you know, the, the surface things kind of shift around? Yeah, I'd say there, there's... Some, some of them are big dramatic changes. Some of them are changes that are smaller that take a, a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely, you can definitely start to see changes when, when people start to do this work. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting juxtaposition with this, which actually leads into your next chapter entitled, <laughs> entitled The Secret to Letting Things Be as, there are, mm-hmm. as, as They Are. And there's kind mm-hmm. of a balancing thing, you know. Does one just let things be as they are and figure, oh, well, uh, this is some kind of divine intelligence giving me this shitty job, and I'm just mm-hmm. going you know, to play it out mm-hmm. and see what it has to teach me. Maybe it's teaching me patience and tolerance in a mind-numbing situation. Mm-hmm. Um, or does one sort of, you know, it's like the old... Hamlet thing to be or not to be. I guess that was Hamlet. You know, do, you, do you kind of exert some kind of chain, you know, uh, individual volition and mm-hmm. say, no, this isn't acceptable. I'm not going to accept this as it is. I'm going to change it. 
<laughs> so there's, there's kind of a balancing act between those two, um, those two things. Yeah, cause, like as long as you're trying to change it on that surface level, it's mm. not going to work anyway. So the, the, the secret to letting things be as they are is, is kind of like the, how, how do we get into the, that, that's sort of the how do I mm. get into that root is by allowing. Because as soon as I start to allow, then I start to access that feeling level, and then I start to access that energetic level, and then I'm sort of falling into the field where things, where everything originates out of, uh-huh. and then I'm seeing it come up as it is, come up as it is out of the field, so on the energetic level, just allowing things to be as they are, kind of give you that that impersonal dimension of this is, this is just consciousness, this is just energy. So you're saying that it's not sufficient to just plod along year after year, allowing something to just be as it is, and just passively yeah. accepting it. You're saying that mm-hmm. one should, you know, actively be probing deeper and deeper. Well, and I, I kind of feel like the true allowing—I call it the allowing practice. The true allowing practice is done on the energetic level. It's done on the feeling level, mm. not necessarily the situational level or the the surface level, like the. I need to, you know, and, and, but I mean, you can do it that way, but it's, it's, it, it impacts you more if it's, if it's a felt experience. Yeah. So if, if the, the boss guy is a real jerk and he's always a jerk every day and I, and I'm troubled about that, there's allowing myself to be troubled on a feeling level, allowing him to be a, a jerk kind of stops the, the externalizing of it. And and then I'm just I'm just with my own feelings, you know. Yeah. I start to think, okay, I can change him. I can make him not be a jerk. There's kind of a whole energetic feed going into that project of trying to change him. And when I just sit with my own, okay, I'm just going to let him be a jerk. And and what am I left with? Like if he didn't even exist. And what am I left with here in this energetic field in this energetic space? What am I left with? And then I would take that feeling to the root. But let's say he's sexually harassing you. Yeah, and I mean, then then I, then you would deal with it, right? Like, so so you're you're first dealing with it on the energetic level and getting yourself clear, because you can deal with these things from a place of clarity, and still, um, you're not spinning out on an unconscious pattern, but you're actually meeting the situation with full conscious awareness and full presence and then you could say you know no yeah then you or call the police or do something you, there's you, an a, there's an actual action that would yeah happen. and so yeah. you might be qu- might be quite assertive you're not just gonna say oh let everything be as it is you know? no <laughs> definitely not because what is is that he's sexually harassing you <laughs> right right yeah and, and it's not acceptable yeah and if that's not okay for you then the, there's an action that would take place like I mean, definitely, if I was walking down the street and and uh, one kid was bullying another kid, there would definitely be an action taking yeah. place. There'd be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's good to bring up because a lot of times people kind of mix levels. For instance, on yes. on, a cer- on a certain level, you can say everything is divinely orchestrated and perfect just as it is. Yeah, you know, but that doesn't that doesn't some that shouldn't take the the steam out of your determination to end you know, child prostitution or hunger or all these other things that really need fixing in the world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, cause, yeah definitely. Because yeah. we're not all going to be moved by the same 
the same things. There's all these different bodies that are aware of what's happening in the world, and we're not all going to be performing the same actions. But I think the more conscious that we become and the more we can meet life as it is, we're actually available to life. So then an action can take place from that, that place of full consciousness and, and full presence. Yeah. There's a line in the Gita, which I've quoted before, but I think it kind of pertains to this discussion, which is, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Mm-hmm. And I think of that when I think of letting everything be as it is, because you know, to, to me that means you do have control over action. So you have all kinds of choices to make and you know, motivation to apply and so on and so forth. But once you have sort of done the action, uh, you don't really have control over the outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and so you kind of let the outcome be as it is while continuing to uh, do your best over the action in the moment over which you do have control. Yeah, I, I, there, there's an analogy in my book that I use, like being in a, being in a building, being on uh-huh. the top floor of a building, which is sort of like at the mind level, and looking out the window at at somebody on the street who's getting mugged. Yeah. So you actually can't if you if you don't take the elevator down to the street level, there's not there's not a lot that you can do. I mean, maybe you can call the police from up there, but if you it, the confusion of levels would be if I stay on that top floor and I and I try to interfere with the situation from up there, I'm not going to impact a change. I'm not going to impact the, the actual guy actually mugging the woman on the street. Mm. So you have to kind of come down out of the mind into the present moment, being fully conscious and fully aware, and then you can meet the guy who's mugging the girl and say, hey, mm-hmm. stop. Yeah. It's interesting. There's an interesting thing going on here because on the one hand, we're talking about needing to go to a level that's much deeper than the uh, surface situation in order to really make a permanent change in the surface situation. <laughs> you know, uh, like you need to water the root of a tree to nourish the fruits that are going to come out <laughs> on the tree. Um, you can't just water the leaves and hope that that's going to nourish the tree. But on the other hand, we're saying that uh, action or that we're also obligated in many circumstances to deal with situations as they are on their own level. And it's mm-hmm. not, suffi- not sufficient to just play around on the subtle and hope that things are going to change. Exactly. Like you, you wouldn't go in the other room and meditate when you saw the person being mugged on the street and Perfect. Ho- hoping to send out peace vibes. You know, exactly. you go down there and do something. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's, that's perfect to see. Um, and basically what the transformation is, is that seeing that they're actually not different. So that that, that that meditative space of clarity, when when we're, when it's lived, then it's then life is lived consciously. Mm-hmm. So every single moment is the meditation on the on the deep level. Yeah. So that's the whole. That's kind of like the whole purpose of transformation is so that it's not two separate things. There's mm-hmm. not going into the deep energetic and and meditating. And then over here, the living in the moment is a whole other thing, mm-hmm. that they're actually the same. So like you were saying a, a little while ago about how if somebody's feeling very, very stuck and they're feeling disconnected, if, if I were to meet that person where they were in that moment, I would, I would want to take that person into deep meditation mm-hmm. to kind of show them to sort of free them up a little bit. But if a person's kind of gone through a transformation and they're already accessing that on a regular basis, they're already very familiar with that, 
then then it's kind of it becomes they can meet that they don't need to sort of stop and meditate anymore it starts to become lived mm-hmm. it's just totally integrated into the into the human life yeah and then it's not two things when uh, it's, it's kind of like we're multidimensional beings we kind of have to take care of all the dimensions you can't just take care of one to the exclusion of the others <clears throat> yeah. yeah so yeah. in your own case do you still yeah. spend periods in meditation or, or do you feel like that's uh, unnecessary now um I do because I'm teaching it, so it's just it has just become kind of a part of my day. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I had a different job, if I would or not, if mm-hmm. I would still sit. But some, but definitely sometimes there's days where I just feel called to just go sit. Yeah. And so I do. Uh, <laughs> it's it's funny because in my own case, I've I've been like a, a obsessively regular meditator for you know 45 years and. Uh, and sometimes people chide me on that. They say, "Why are you still doing it? You know, after all this time." But my, I just go by my experience, which is that if I've been sitting in front of a computer for eight hours, uh, first of all, I won't go sit and meditate. I'll go take a bike ride or something to get my blood moving a bit. But then, when I do sit and meditate, I can feel the influence of all that computerizing in my nervous system, and it's an opportunity to kind of soothe and heal it. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it, I don't. I don't it, it almost still feels like I would. If I didn't do that, I would be accumulating layers of crud mm-hmm. that med- meditation gives me an opportunity to get rid of. But I don't know for sure, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember one of the very first meditation teachers I ever had, somebody asked him, when when do I get to not ever meditate again? Uh-huh. And he said, the same day when you get to not ever brush your teeth again. <laughs> uh-huh. Interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, a, a simpler answer to the whole thing is, I enjoy it, you know, and, and if I get to a point where I don't find, it, it just doesn't feel right to do anymore, then I suppose I'll stop. If you it know, was a chore. It's, it's real simple. Yeah, it's not a chore. It's like a delight. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is is that it becomes less of a methodology. Yeah. And it becomes just a just a place to just be and enjoy. Like, it just becomes, I, I just love to fall back into the field. It, it, yeah. It's a wonderful feeling, and mm-hmm. and often life will pull it out of me anyway. Somebody will write me and say, you know, can you can you work on me today? Can you send me some healing vibes today? I'm feeling really sick, and mm-hmm. so then I'm naturally compelled to to just go sit and yeah. and go to the field and hold that person. So. Mm. Again, to each his own. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right. So we've talked quite a bit about relationships, just to, which was your next chapter, but we kind of touched upon that with bosses and. Yeah. marriages and whatnot. Is there anything more we want to say about relationships before we move on? I think that, yeah, that probably, I mean, there's probably more more to go into in that, but it probably does yeah. cover it. Just we want still people to still buy the book. We don't want to tell them everything. <laughs> <laughs> relationship chapters. Um, <laughs> your meditations in there. <laughs> yeah. So you have a chapter on trauma and fear of loss. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah. to say about that that we haven't covered? Um, Trauma might be a good one. I mean, look at um, how how much in the news uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is these days with all these soldiers Mm -hmm. coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a big issue. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty – it's kind of an extensive topic, yeah, for sure. Mm. And – In fact, your whole theme about – I was thinking about this a lot as I was reading your book because you talk a lot about kind of – building a protective shell around ourselves versus just being open and feeling whatever 
we feel, you know, yeah. without any kind of defenses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I kept thinking, yeah, that's easy to say, but it's kind of a natural human tendency to, you know, shield oneself. If somebody goes to punch you, you know, you, you, you shield yourself. And on a, on a, that's the same thing happens if we're, you know, we're, we're serving in Afghanistan and people are dropping bombs and shooting machine guns and whatnot. There's a kind of a, a natural yeah. reaction that the nervous system has. Yeah, but I think that's different when it's conscious. Like I think I think when 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 the defensive patterns are are unconscious, mm -hmm. it has a totally different flavor than if a if a very present conscious person puts up a shield for somebody that's about about to punch them or like a martial a master martial artist would would have would have moves mm -hmm. and but and still be fully fully present and conscious kind of has a different flavor than the the type of defense that is that is unconscious because those ones don't actually protect you they just mm. seem to so they're sort of put up as an old strategy that was working that that was maybe or we thought was going to work as a child and then we became unconscious of it and then we were still doing it as an adult but it's actually not working so once it's evaluated then it's seen okay this isn't it's not like a true defense it's sort of like a a seeming defense so not let's i don't know if the ptsd example is a good one for this but you know it's common these days so so let's say that one is in a situation where one ha is in a national guard or something and they have to go to afghanistan and it's it's a very stressful situation is 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 it possible to conceive of a way of dealing with that where you're kind of consciously just mm -hmm. f you know feeling stuff but not accumulating stress and not unconsciously throwing up defenses well when you're fully conscious you're just meeting every moment as it is uh -huh. so you're 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 meet you're present you're meeting the moment and and then you're 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 kind of meeting that situation appropriately. So if someone came up with a gun, there would be a, an appropriate action that would need to take place. Mm. And if I was fear-based or contracted or stuck, then I wouldn't be able to be very conscious. So it would be harder to, to respond appropriately to the situation. So you're saying these people really are not really... Um, prepared to go into battle or into the, the military because they're not fully conscious and if we had a kind of a way of preparation during <laughs> during boot camp of enabling people to be fully conscious then they they we'd have far fewer people coming back with PTSD well well this might be a really controversial statement but <clears throat> I kind of feel like if they were if they were fully conscious they wouldn't be going over there in the first place yeah. <laughs> right yeah neelam said the same thing i was interviewing neelam and i said you know maybe what if the army hires you and she said well they wouldn't have much of an army left <laughs> yeah i mean if 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 we were all if, if all of a sudden there was a mass awakening and all of humanity became suddenly fully conscious mm -hmm. i i really can't see war continuing i just yeah i can't no, see it <laughs> good point so you know maybe it's yeah. uh Maybe that's the answer to it. That it's uh, it's a moot point because if there were adequate development of consciousness, then mm -hmm. we wouldn't have people going over there in the first place, so there'd be no PTSD. So it's kind of like PTSD is the inevitable outcome of of uh, of society in which we're going and engaging in such battles. Well, the, and the the unconsciousness in in general. Like I, I mean, if you, I, I I just can't even fathom taking an animal and and being fully present and fully conscious and harming it. Right. 
consciously. They just can't even conceive of it. Forgive them, Father. They know not what (laughs) they do. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, exactly. So as soon as as you know what you're doing, then you see how precious life is. Yeah. And And it's not an unconscious religious, oh, I have to respect life. It's like just being fully present, like... I every once in a while get mice in my garage and I just can't kill them right. yeah. <laughs> to live trap them. Yeah. So it's kind of like you start to really see the value of life, mm-hmm. of, of a human life, of an animal life, of an ant even. And the more conscious you are, I think the more you recognize the preciousness of it. So Yeah. So we were talking earlier about the density of the world and how tough it is for many people. Uh, yeah. You know, you just get thrown into this kind of like hellish situation you don't know what the heck's going on um and that so there's this kind of um and the world tends to course on you you know mm-hmm. it tends to, to to numb and blunt your your sensitivity yeah and your delicacy sure. your delicacy um so i think what we're talking about here it is hardens us. it hardens us yeah mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about um reversing that tendency and and culturing the ability to be sensitive yet strong mm-hmm. in the midst of challenging situations uh, yeah. you don't you don't have to be numb and, and blunt and dull to withstand the vicissitudes of life you, you, there can be a, a kind of a subtlety and a sensitivity that that's culture which again i wanted to ask you about because you know you, you talked of not having protective barriers up and just feeling things fully but it, when i heard you say that in your book it, it seemed to me I, I kept thinking yeah but there needs to be an inner strength uh, yes. and, and if the inner strength is there, then that'll just be the way it is. But if, if there's an inner yeah. weakness, then you, then it's kind of inevitable that you're going to be throwing up barriers and, and protective shields. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Because that's, and that's the freedom. So if you're, if you recognize what you are can't be harmed. So if there's that recognition that, okay, what I am is inherently safe. It's like it's like going back to the well analogy. That would be like recognizing that there's a rope <clears throat> attached to you, and that I'm I'm actually secure. Mm-hmm. So I I think I give an analogy in the book like a like being on a roller coaster in the dark. That if you that that if there's consciousness, so if you know, okay, I'm gonna go on I'm gonna go on this roller coaster, and I'm strapped in, and I'm safe. And it's pitch black in there. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun rather than it if you don't know if you're unconscious and you go in and you're for, forgetting why you were there and all of a sudden you're in the dark and getting thrown around. Then it's a terrifying experience. Mm. So it kind of goes into that freedom is your nature again. That that in that sense of what you are can't be harmed. Yeah. And it's not just the concept that what you are can't be harmed, because the concept isn't necessarily going to do you any good. It's it's no. the it's the sort of actual use the word often in your book rooted in that. Rooted it's the in. experiential establishment in that that really yeah. uh, you know becomes a, a a genuine foundation. You can't just go through life with the the notion oh I can't be harmed and and have that have any practical no yeah. value yeah. yeah and that's the strength that that you just brought up. The, the rooting in that is the true strength. And then you don't need all those pseudo-defenses because yeah. th- those weren't working anyway. And th- they were sort of replacing that right. because we didn't feel safe. So we, we tried to find a way to survive here without right. that direct connection to what we are. 
And to take an extreme example, um, Christ on the cross, always, people always use Hitler or Christ on the cross or whatever to, to bring up to illustrate points. But in, the, in, in his case, uh, you know, how far would the concept I can't be harmed get you in a circumstance like that? Uh, you know, not very far. But, <laughs> but if you're, you know, his actual mm-hmm. status being what it was, that, that, situa- that experience was undergone, I would argue, without... Um, in his core of being without suffering you know obviously uh, the body was suffering obviously but there was Mm -hmm. a dimension to his life that was beyond suffering and that that inner dimension which we could you know think of as inner strength um was untouched by it yeah and i would also say clarity Mm -hmm. that that there's a clear seeing of what's what right that that physical pain is physical pain yeah and 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 when you're rooted in that inherent uh, that inherent i i am consciousness or I, I that harmlessness then it's like you can hold both feelings at the same time mm-hmm. not through any volition but be, but spontaneously you live both at the same time yeah it's just sort of there the physical yeah, it's, pain it's is like, just there but it's, it's there. seen clearly yeah Right. There's a kind of a natural. Uh, <clears throat> again, you're, you're, we're multidimensional, and, and your awareness yes. at that stage is bridging the, the full range of, of dimensions. Yes. And, and so the untouchable, invincible level is being appreciated. Well, at the same time, the, the you know. Human frailty. The, the frailty, the vulnerable level is being killed. Uh, yeah. but, but, you know, there's a, there's a level which is free from that, even in the midst of, of that. And, of course, the people watching the situation are only relating it to it from their level of experience and thinking, oh, this, is, uh, this must be unbearable. Right. But, but that's their perspective. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the first teacher I had, John Taylor, used to talk about suffering on top of suffering. What do you mean by that? The, the, well, the, there would be the, <clears throat> the physical pain. Mm-hmm. So when that's held in clarity, that would be physical pain suffering yeah and when there's no clarity then there's another layer of suffering on top of that exactly That's right that the confusion and the the, the the misplaced identity yeah that creates a whole other layer of suffering on top of that yeah people say that when ramana maharshi was dying of cancer you know and sometimes he would scream out in pain Exactly. And people people would express all this concern. He said, "Don't worry, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not <Okay>. suffering." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk. I don't know if we skipped over this, but well, there's a whole chapter here about living in your heart, and it ends up with this lazy Zen master story, which I, th- <laughs> I think would be worth telling. So let's, okay. so let's dwell on some of the points in that chapter. Sure. Um. The, the lazy Zen master story is an analogy. I, I think it's like a Zen parable mm-hmm. that is <clears throat> the description between complacency and contentment. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of clarifying that distinction. Uh, and actually, it kind of touches a little bit on what you said earlier about... Um, Letting things be as they are versus... Yeah. You know whether it is nobler to take action against the sea of troubles and you know, <laughs> by opposing end them or yeah, that. yeah. So it's really just sort of bringing clarity to um, c- complacency would be when would be almost from a place of unconsciousness, mm-hmm. like oh, I don't care, almost as a defense. And contentment is I am living and truly content with what is. And the the lazy Zen master story is about. The, the master, the Zen master that is living contentment 
and and he's so content that he's lazy, so he doesn't do anything. He just sits on the couch and so we, we, true true lazy as a high state, mm-hmm. <laughs> not as our Western negative connotation. <laughs> but um, so he's sitting on the couch, staring out the window, content, letting life be as it is. And the the his friend contacts him and. And says, oh, what are you up to since you left the monastery? He's like, oh, nothing. I'm just so happy to just be here. I'm just sitting here. I'm not doing anything. Just not resisting life and being here. It's very peaceful. And then about six months later or a year later, he calls him up again. And he says, oh, you want to connect? What are you doing? He's like, oh, well, now I'm a successful owner of a bookstore chain. And he's like, well, how did that happen? You were... I thought you were just watching life go by. And it's like, yeah, but the impulse to open a bookstore came and I was too lazy to resist it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I like that. It's just that being moved by life and letting letting things get pulled out of you. Yeah, which kind of segues into Chapter 9 of your book, Divine Timing and Natural Intelligence, which is that, you know, ultimately what is it that's moving us? There's a lot of talk in, in by various spiritual teachers about how and even science, you know, there have been some scientific studies that we don't seem to really be the author of our thoughts and, and actions. They just kind of uh, happen, and then we claim ownership from them afterwards. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting to, if if we are not the author, then who or what is the author? You know, what is the motivating force mm-hmm. of life? And I think you identify that in your book as, as nat- d- d- natural intelligence. Natural intelligence, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I kind of see it like a fractal, like... Um, if you were to look at, at just like spinning galaxies or um, like a, a sunflower opening or a flower opening, there's it's not like the flower is saying, okay, now I'm going to open. Okay, now I'm going to make my leaf reach out over toward the sun. There's there's just a natural mechanism that that's, that's just happening. Mm-hmm. And, and then the ego would claim that. It from from in, in a human, the ego would claim it and say, "I did that. I yeah. made it happen." And that there's a space that you can get into where it's sort of like you come in. You you can come in between that time delay in in the space. So I just call it the field, where 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 you see that things are arising by themselves. It's just happening by itself. It's just this intelligence that's just popping up as itself. And it's kind of living in in between that sort of prior to where the ego claims it and says, I did that. I mean, mm. so in other words, you're kind of dwelling in the field and enjoying yeah. the play as it, as it unfolds and displays itself. Yeah. But you know, you're, you're not kind of, um, you, you don't feel like I, you know, I'm the one who's got the reins here. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's nobody driving the bus. Yeah. It's just driving. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff in the Gita about that, too, as you probably know, you know, like the authorship of action. It's really the gunas that are doing it and so on. Um, but I think the interesting uh, implication of it is that, generally speaking, as I see it, when, when people really feel like they are firmly in control of their life, generally their life isn't flowing too smoothly. Uh, you know, it's kind of there's all kinds of problems and roughness and s- stress and turmoil. But yeah. it, if if you've gotten to the perspective where you realize that you're not in control over it, and there there really does seem to be some divine intelligence uh, conducting it, then it's you know generally quite a delightful life. Mm-hmm. So what's yeah. the advantage really of being in control? Not too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And when you think about it, I mean, you think of the vastness of the intelligence governing this universe, even the even the vastness of the intelligence that you see displayed in a single cell. Yeah, exactly. You know, how can our human intelligence compare with that in terms of its ability to organize and, and know what's best and, and so on? <clears throat> That's a really good testament to natural intelligence, actually. If if someone is sort of arguing and saying, no, I, I, you know, I, I can run my life better. It's like, okay, well, I want you to make me a cell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or a ho- you know, ho- house fly or something. You'd create one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go digest your food. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the implication of this point is that the intelligence that's governing the universe isn't um, capricious, it isn't random, it isn't dumb, it isn't... Um, uncaring there's a kind of a it may seem so sometimes but but if we come back to the right perspective there's a there's an evolutionary really compassionate we could almost say um it's funny to say motivation because you usually use that word in association with an individual but there's a there's that quality or tendency in that cosmic intelligence that the whole thing is a, a giant evolution machine and whatever's happening we're all being kind of moved along toward higher levels of expression of that intelligent of that intelligence yeah i i see it as very harmonious i almost see it as like mathematically perfect in the mm. sense that there there is like the this flow to it that's just you know when i look into the field and i see it it's like just awe it's like oh my god it's so it's so perfect i can't even put words to it how everything is flowing in this harmonious way there's absolutely no way that that me as a human being could 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 compare with that so it's right. much easier to just let it happen and yeah yeah well like you say even digestion i mean if we had to consciously control all the things that keep our body alive we'd die within a second yeah and it's all yeah. the same intelligence okay? yeah it is the, the intelligence that's growing your hair right now is the same intelligence that is waking us up and and going that process of transformation that a lot of us seem to be going through right now it's that same intelligence that's behind that mm-hmm. so that's kind of a relaxing thought too it's like okay that's already yeah. it's already being done okay <laughs> so i guess the question is how can we best cooperate with it mm-hmm. you yeah, know I see it get, like get out of the way how do we how do we sort of prevent ourselves from thwarting that intelligence and just <laughs> bring it on you know let me do your thing as fully as you can i won't i i don't want to interfere <laughs> I, my feeling is that it's it's a relaxation that te- mm-hmm. that happens that it, it's a softening back into the moment and and relaxing into the moment but at the same time there's an alertness there there's kind of a balance between a very deep rest and and, and a presence or a, a conscious alertness Nice. And then it's kind of like, it's like it's like a surfer, yeah, surfing the wave. If the if the surfer's trying to change the wave, he's not going to have a very good surf. <laughs> right. So if he's going, oh, that's my wave. Okay, I got to meet that wave. How do I get up? And and mm. there's such focus and clarity and just being in that moment that the wave is surfed well. There's a nice line from the Vedas. It goes, "Be easy to us with gentle effort." Ah. <sighs> So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that just gentle sort of intentionality like the surfer would use, just balancing, just kind of riding this wave and accepting yeah. this wave as it is because you can't make it a different wave. No. Uh, and, and then it's easy. Yeah, and if you're trying to make the wave as a different wave, then, yeah, then you have a problem. Yeah, you crashed around. <laughs> uh-huh. Nice. So uh, you know, one, one thing that I 
you know, you and I have kind of exchanged emails about over the last couple of years is, um, you know, the woo-woo word <laughs> when, when, when there's a particular um, interview and, and, you, and you ask, you say, is there some woo-woo in this one? I say, yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, so I think everybody knows what we mean by woo-woo, but just, yeah. you know, something a little bit beyond the ordinary mm-hmm. stuff that's often talked about in spiritual circles, um, yeah. which is sometimes kind of nuts and bolts in a way. Yeah. Um, so why do you find woo-woo fascinating? Maybe we just better clarify what you mean by it also. I, I, anything out of the mainstream, just like supernatural or like in yoga, the cities, you know, right. the, um, the, or, or the miraculous even. Mm-hmm. I find I find it to be fascinating because my feeling is that the human potential is it's it's actually very natural for us to have these abilities to see into the future or instantaneous healing or telepathy or empathy or any of those things maybe empathy is a little bit more mainstream but that these that these qualities actually are are totally natural to the human form and so the more conscious we are the more conscious of course we are of those things these possibilities. At the same time, though, I don't like to, to emphasize it sort of, you know, basically, quote unquote, too soon, um, because otherwise then I think it can become like a distraction, like a dangling carrot. Yeah. Like, yeah, if you're if you're a good girl and you do your meditation, you'll get powers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I kind of don't like that. But There's an analogy that's been used <laughs> in this context, which is that let's say there's a territory and the territory is commanded by a fort. And then throughout the territory, there are all kinds of diamond mines and gold mines and silver mines and interesting things that one could potentially want to explore and possess. Uh, But if you go after the diamond mine or the gold mine without having first captured the fort, you're on very shaky ground because you don't own own the territory. And so the trick is capture the fort first, Mm -hmm. and then you'll be at at liberty to explore the territory. Yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah. Another one I like, too, is like the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And they're going on this journey to get to the Emerald Palace or whatever. And there's this point where they hit the field of poppies. Right. And to me, that I would call that the field. You know, And, and once you start to really access the field, that's where all the cities are and all the mm. extraordinary things are, are happening. And the miraculous are just very ordinary. But there's also a sleepiness that yeah. can come at that point. So in The Wizard of Oz, that's where they all fall asleep. They, uh. they kind of get drunk on the opium <laughs> or whatever. And, they, and so there's also a sleepiness that can happen there too or or a um, you can kind of get carried off by the specialness of it. Yeah. And, and it can kind of create almost a further separation rather than continuing on through the field of poppies and, and carrying on on the journey. Yeah. So in other words, it can become a... Um a diversion at that point. You can become yeah. allured by the fascination with it. Yeah, and like the you, you haven't actually yeah. captured the fort. You haven't reached Oz. You haven't uh, reached Oz. Right. Yes. And so you're getting. There's even a verse in the in the Yoga Sutras, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that it, you may be sort of appealed to by the celestial powers, celestial beings, and they're mm-hmm. saying, "Here, have this blessing, have this boon, <laughs> and so on." But that yeah. that itself can be a, a trap to keep you from going all the way. Yeah, and it's sort of like. Once you go all the way and you see, oh, those shoes were always on my feet. Mm. It's always been right with me. You know, then you can go back to the field of poppies and you probably won't fall asleep. You can stay. Or like I, how I love the 
they, they shower snow on them to wake them up, which oh, right. is very symbolic of the innocence. So if you mm-hmm. maintain your innocence and your purity, then you probably, that's a good chance to stay awake in the field and, and use these abilities consciously to, to benefit humanity. But it's not, I tend to think of this whole human trip like a team sport. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. So if I'm, if I'm conscious and I know those shoes are on my feet and I'm pure and innocent, those abilities that you find in the field can be used for the yeah. team, you know, to help the whole. Absolutely. When Not I was reading selfish. that chapter in your book, I was I somehow thought of, well, what if there's a planet, and I'm sure there are in this vast universe, where you know the level of evolution of someone like Ramana Maharshi is the norm, mm-hmm. or maybe maybe he'd even be kind of a dullard in that world, you know? <laughs> and I'm it's sure. a, a very a very enlightened place where you know, the, and yeah. and so you know, what would we actually see on that planet in terms of what? was taken for granted in terms of what people are capable of yeah. you know and not only their technologies which might be incredible but even yeah. their their human abilities would for instance levitation be run of the mill exactly. you know yeah. or you know anything like that yeah or like teleportation or any of those types of things yeah, yeah. and i mean you know and to use an example from our own world um, you know 150 years ago if you'd seen a, a jet plane take off you would have been completely flabbergasted it's so outside the realm of your yeah. experience now we take them for granted yeah. And so we we very easily become accustomed to yeah. what beca- to the norm, and yeah. so there could very well be places where the norm is you know really beyond the reaches of our imagination. Yeah, yeah. And so the doubting mind would be kind of like, "There's no way that's possible." Yeah. But then when it's seen, or or, or your level of consciousness is is to a degree where it's it's experienced directly, and then then it's that 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 sense of doubt is just kind of moot. It's sort of sort of dispelled because you're seeing it yeah, or experiencing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Great. So what would you like to leave people with in terms of, uh, I don't know, just whole discussion, you know, what, what would you like people's, if you had to wrap it up in a nutshell and give people some kind of words of inspiration or something, what would you like to say? Hmm. I guess like what I, what I like to leave people with when I, when I teach yoga or meditation classes is, is actually the breath is is actually that within the breath there is that's that's the way into the field that's that direct connection to that unlimited that unlimited support um, source of that natural intelligence that's growing your hair and spinning the galaxies is there in the breath so if you ever feel disconnected or you can't find it that that just a one simple way is to just consciously breathe to just hmm. relax back and fall into that space where where breath is moving in and out and then drop into the feeling of it. And and what's great about just conscious breathing is you can do it. You don't have to be in a deep meditative space to feel to feel that life force in the breath. You can be in a traffic jam or sitting at your desk. Or... Hmm. Good. Yeah. Alrighty. When do you think your book is gonna be published? Um well so far the date is set for November fifteenth. Oh, uh, very soon. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a DVD coming out also a yoga yoga relaxation dvd mm-hmm. and there's some meditation cds with the allowing practice good they are coming out or you already have um, those the, the cds are available if you just put my name into itunes you'd find them there mm-hmm. the ocean of light cd i think is the one or the deep rest one i think is the one that has the allowing practice sort of okay. guided and, and talked through and i'll be linking to your website so that people you have all that stuff listed yeah. there i imagine you can see it on my on the on the blog yeah yeah Okay, good. 
right? So this has been delightful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, next week I'll be going out to the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California, uh, but I will be doing an interview out there. I'm going to interview Francis Lucille at the end of the conference and after the conference, and uh, I'll be conducting a little <clears throat> forum out there with several different speakers, including Igor Kufayev, whom I uh, interviewed a couple of times, and a couple of other fellows. Yeah, <coughs> I liked it. Yeah, and uh, the theme of our forum is going to be very much the some of the stuff we've been talking about today about <clears throat> you know not letting understanding alone, uh, not mistaking understanding for realization, and not mm. not mistaking an initial realization for final liberation. And we're also going to talk about this whole point of different levels of reality and how each each has to be given its due, and you can't sort of take the realization of one level, you know, to be a substitute for action on another level and oh, so on. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That sounds awesome. And I wish I actually you had been able to come out. I th didn't think of it. I was, it's all four guys on the panel, and I, I really should have reached into my binder of women to <laughs> use a current phrase and invited you to come down, but maybe we'll do that next year. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That'd be good. Okay, so thanks. So in conclusion, uh, I've been speaking with Christine Wischke. I'll be linking to her website from batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. And uh, if you'd like to be notified of upcoming interviews, there's a new one each week, uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel and YouTube will notify you. Or you, you can go to batgap.com and there's a tab where you can click and put in your email address and your name and you'll receive an email once a week when a new interview is posted. And there's also a discussion group there, which gets quite lively at times, almost too lively. I'm being asked to come in and moderate and kick people <laughs> out and all that, which is really not my nature. <laughs> uh, but uh, feel free to participate in that, um, okay. anyone. And, and Christine will come in and answer questions and so on, I imagine, if, if anybody has any. Sure, um, I Yeah. And... Um, this exists also as a audio podcast. If you'd like to get it on your iPod, there's a link with each interview to the iTunes place where you can sign up for that podcast. And there's a donate button on the site, which um, is makes it possible for me to attend this conference next week, for instance, and to do other things that are related to BatGap and may maybe eventually even to shift this into becoming a full-time profession, although got a long way to go before doing that. <laughs> um, but may happen. So thank you everybody for listening or watching and we'll see you next week. Thank you.